scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, uh, and this is kind of a two-part scripture reading. Uh, I'm going to read the first half of the chapter this week, and the second half of the chapter next week for next week's sermon. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading the first seven verses. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, or the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I read that passage of scripture Because as God addresses the church, his household, he gives instructions for how men and women are to relate to one another within his house. And much of what he says is directly connected to the text that I just read. Speaking not only to how God has created us, male and female, but how we relate to one another in a fallen and in a broken world. I preached a message, I looked at it this week and realized, oh my goodness, it was actually like two months ago, Uh, but two messages on what it means to be men and women according to the word of God and what it means to be men and women in a culture that's very confused and divided over something that even 10 years ago seemed very simple and straightforward. And I would ask if something in this message just seems off, A couple of things. You are always welcome to talk to me. Uh, You're welcome to email me. You can come by after service or just stop by the church during the week. Uh, But also, I would encourage you to listen to those two messages. You can find them. YouTube is probably the easiest way to find them. You can go to our church's YouTube page and then scroll back and you'll see them labeled very clearly. And I would encourage you to hear what I believe the Word of God says about how men and women both equally bear the image of God and how we are made equal and yet different, and how we serve together in a beautiful, complementary way so that our strengths are enhanced and our weaknesses are overcome. And I believe one of the church's greatest opportunities for witness in a broken world is when men and women love each other and trust each other within a diverse body across generations. Yes, this is hard. And yet, it is our greatest opportunity to show what Jesus Christ does with broken people when he heals them and together makes them as one. So I want to encourage you, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And Paul gives some specific instructions uh, to men and women. We are in chapter 2. 
And I want to give you my entire outline before I go through parts of it. And I want to say a couple of things uh, before I even read the passage, but go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. One of them is this. Uh, when Lauren and I lived in Chicago, I've mentioned bed bugs so often. If you've never experienced the horror, I don't think you can appreciate how absolutely life-changing this is. Um, every time I get a mosquito bite, I start looking to see... Are there like three of them in a line? Because if there are three of them in a line, that's not a mosquito. And, and it doesn't matter how long it's been, we start wondering, do we have them again? Did they somehow survive? Are they back? And that causes us to do weird things, things that other people would think are normal. And, and five years after the fact, we're starting to calm down and be okay. But if you initially said, hey, I know you just moved and, and you don't have a lot of furniture. Do you need a couch? we would have looked at you wide-eyed and in terror and said, no, no, what are you trying to do to me? Because used furniture is one of the biggest ways that bedbugs spread all across Chicago. Think of poor moody students that came from the Midwest that have never seen a bedbug or heard of a bedbug except for in like a nursery rhyme. They see a couch on the curb and they think, man, I'm going to have the best dorm room on my floor. I'm going to get that couch. And they just don't even realize what they've done. Here's the thing. Five years in, our anxiety and fear has kind of calmed down. Holly does not have bed bugs like Chicago does. And the real problem was not so much with a generous person who wanted to bless us with a free couch. They were being kind. The real problem was that we had taken past trauma into a place where there was no trauma, and we did not trust and love the people who were loving us because we were afraid in an irrational kind of way. And the reason I share that is I think so often in our culture, we have a kind of PTSD when it comes to talking about men and women. Men are, at times, toxic. Women are, at times, abused. In fact, abuse is distressingly common. And so when we approach a text that teaches that men are called to lead in the home and in the church, many times, especially if you've been hurt by, by a bad man, you believe that the scripture is trying to give authority to some sort of monster and leave him in a position of power that he should not have. And many times, we have not preached as faithfully as we should about servant Christ-like leadership that is self-sacrificial, that is deeply loving. And so when we begin to talk about the responsibility of men to lead in worship and to lead in the home, it just sounds like we want to put the most incompetent, hurtful person in charge and leave that unaddressed and unfixed because that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's not how the Bible describes godly leadership. In fact, the Bible describes men and teaches them and instructs them to live with their wives in an understanding way and says, if you're not right with your wife, don't expect God to listen to your prayers. That's part of why I preach through 1 Peter, because the instructions to men are so clear that you are to put your wife and your family before yourself. Ephesians chapter 5 describes how Christ as the husband of the church loves her and dies for her. And, and Paul then turns to men and says, Men, you are called to lay your life down for your wife. 
And the leadership within the church in the same way is called to make sure that men and women together are able to thrive. And so I want to say if you have a negative reaction to this, I understand. Probably you have good reasons to have a negative reaction to it. However, I want to ask you to be patient and to listen to the word of God because I believe it will be a blessing to you if we follow it as it's written. The other thing I want to say before I approach the text is this. Paul speaks generally to men and he speaks generally to women. And whenever you speak generally to anyone, there are going to be exceptions. But an exception to a general principle does not mean that the general principle is invalid or doesn't apply. And let me give you an example just from everyday life that is a recurring example. So if you've ever driven anywhere with children, children at some point will reach a kind of, we hate this car and we can't wait to get out of it and we don't ever want to go in a car ever again. And at some point, you might say, all right, everybody be quiet. Not that I've ever done this. At which point, the one kid that was like faithfully coloring and was super quiet looks up and goes, I wasn't doing anything. And they feel frustrated that you've called them out when they were behaving. They were being good. Uh, a couple of our kids are, you know, the, the good kid. And as soon as you say, hey, they're, they're quick to point out, I didn't do that. I, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your brother, you know. What I want to say is this. The Bible says some general things about men and women. And yes, there are exceptions to this. There are abusive women. There are subversive men. But the exception to the rule does not invalidate the general instruction. And in fact, some of what I want to discuss towards the end of this message, I believe our culture behaves a little bit differently than the way Paul is addressing this culture, but the general principle still applies. Very often when a pastor comes to a text like this, the church kind of says, okay, pastor, you have one job. Here's your job. You need to tell us that this doesn't apply to us. Give us good reasons that this is no longer true. And saints, I would be an unfaithful shepherd if I did that. I believe God has given us this instruction and that we should not apologize for it, but that we should humbly seek to understand it. That we should humbly not only try to understand it, but assess our personal lives and the culture of our church and see, are we following this? Is there a chance that our witness could burn brighter by more faithfulness to what Paul is teaching. So I'm going to give you my entire outline, and then I want to go through it point by point. He starts by addressing the men, and then in a moment he's going to address the women, and he gives us a couple of specific instructions. Number one, and I was kind of careful in my outline, I figure I want to wait as long as possible before I frustrate anybody. So I don't want you to read my outline and go, oh, I want to be kind of vague in my outline and then tell you what I mean later. Number one is pray. Pray. He speaks generally 
to men in particular, and the Greek word for men is not anthropos. Anthropos is the general word for humanity. It's the Greek word aner, which is never used for men and women. It's used uniquely for men. So he's speaking to the men of the church, and he says, men, I want you to pray, and gives them some instructions. Now, the Bible is very clear. Women are to pray in the corporate gathering of the service. One of the things that's easy to miss when we read a passage like this is the fact that the New Testament church is radical for believing that men and women can and should worship together. It was radical then, and it's radical now. But the first instruction is pray. Number two, and also addressed to men, I've entitled it, Don't Divide. But why I say that is because he instructs men to not be angry And in their anger, I believe the issue he's addressing is a a sort of division that comes from arguing in a prideful, sinful sort of way. It's a kind of toxic masculinity that we would easily recognize. It's the alpha male that has to be right. And that kind of personality, when it's not redeemed, will cause division within the church. So number one, pray. Number two, don't divide. Number three in verses 9 and 10, I want to say don't show off. And there are a couple of things. In particular, he's saying, ladies, let your character shine. Be known for your good works and who you are and what you do, not for how you look. And some of the instructions seem quaint and antiquated, but he's addressing an issue of modesty, not at all blaming women for men's sin, but instead saying, ladies, Be aware as we worship together that you can help or hinder your brother's worship. And so help. Try to dress in a way that is modest, that is not distracting. No one, men or women, should dress in a way that draws attention to their body in a way that might lead someone else to sin. This is true of women in the church, and he's speaking generally. Um, I'll say more about that when we get there. And lastly, my last point is learn in humility. Learn in humility. And this is something that is true of men and women both, but in this context, it's addressed uniquely to women. And I think there are good reasons for that. But I don't want to miss the fact that men throughout the entire New Testament are called to submit to the leadership of the church as well. The church does not have a division where men are more valuable and women are less valuable. The men is the body of Christ, excuse me, the church is the body of Christ where men are called to lay their lives down to serve the women that God loves with equal value, with equal gifting. And I want to be very, very clear. Paul begins talking to the congregation generally, and then next week, Excuse me, two weeks, two weeks from now will be July 4th and we'll be having a group service. Three weeks from now, we'll begin looking at how he describes church leadership of elders and deacons and how elders are responsible to teach the church and how they're responsible to be the shepherd leaders of the church. And eventually we'll see how deacons are called to serve the church and how they are the hands and feet of Christ as we meet the practical needs, not only of the body, but of the community. And I believe in these instructions, we will see how men and women together work to serve the Lord. Nothing I say is intended to ever ask a woman to stop serving in ministry. Quite the opposite. We need women in ministry and we need more women in ministry. 
but we also need men in ministry and we need men leading in ministry for the health and the blessing of the church. So I think I've successfully dug a large hole. Let's slowly go through these lines and ask the Lord to bless us as we look at each of them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to begin with verse 8 and just the first half of verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. Part of what he's doing here is he is beginning to be specific about how the instructions for prayer that he's given earlier are to be applied within a corporate worship service. Friends, conduct matters deeply. Paul mentions the holiness of these men who are praying in the church because if you are in sin, you are not qualified to lead in any capacity. And so as he calls men to lift holy hands in prayer, he's not just adding flowery church language. We are called to live in godly conduct. And of course, all of us sin. All of us will sin. But we are not to continue in sin. We are to patiently confess our sins and seek the mercy of God so that our prayers are not hindered. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, in other words, if I see it and I know it's there and I leave it there, God will not hear our prayers. And so the call to leadership, even here, is a call to purity and holiness. If we see men in leadership that don't meet this qualification, they need to be removed from leadership. There is no place for unholy leadership anywhere in the church. But notice again that his first instruction, even before he talks about teaching, is about praying. It's about asking God to meet and supply our needs. Asking God to do what only he can do in forgiving our sins and healing our broken relationships. And so he moves from, I desire that in every place that men should pray, to talking about the qualifications for this kind of prayer in holiness, and then what might hinder that prayer. So before I go to don't divide, I want to say a word about the first two words of this verse. Paul says, I desire. Um, And I mentioned a moment ago, many people feel like the pastor's job with a passage like this is to say it doesn't apply to us. And some would point to those two words and say, Paul is just speaking his own private opinion. This isn't binding on the church. And what I want to suggest is that we need to remember how he introduced this letter. That chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. And that when he writes, he writes with the authority of Jesus. Verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then he begins giving Timothy different instructions for how to be a faithful pastor. No one would look at chapter 1, verse 3 and say, that's just Paul's private opinion. You don't have to follow that, Timothy. If he did that, the whole letter would be pointless. So when Paul says, I'm urging you, he is urging us with the authority of an apostle, with the will of Jesus behind his instructions. 
Notice how often Paul uses the word I throughout this letter. And the only place we question whether or not we need to follow the instructions is when it confronts a culture that's broken in a deeply personal way. And so I want to remind you the I in chapter 2 verse 8 is an apostle of Christ Jesus who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And his instructions for men and women are good and fundamentally healing for our broken culture. So, pray and men have a heart to pray. If you want to grow in that, I want to encourage you, just sit silently in our prayer service on Sunday morning. Learn to pray by listening to other people pray. If you want to grow in that, I want to urge you, learn how to study prayer. But men, I want to call you in a particular way to begin leading in our church in vocal public prayer. This is a thing that will bless us. But men, as you are called to lead in prayer, also hear his clear instructions that are intended for our gender in particular, do not divide. And look at what he says In the second half of verse 8, our prayer is to be without anger or quarreling. Without anger or quarreling. I think everybody has heard fights in the church over things that really don't matter. And Paul has talked earlier in this book, in chapter 1, about people that love to teach things that they don't understand, and they build themselves up with a sort of knowledge that you're like, oh, shoot, man, you can quote all these verses. But the end result of their teaching is just ignorant division and conversation that does not lead to godliness. And sometimes our arguing and our quarreling, which is more typical of men, it's not that women never do this, but men are known as the more aggressive of the two sexes, right? It's still okay to admit that this is true. I've known aggressive women, they are not in the majority for the fairer sex, Aggressive men are more typical of their gender, and Paul is speaking generally and saying, men, don't let your pig-headed bullishness hinder the united prayer of the church. Now, I can criticize men, and it's okay. We have a culture that loves to criticize men. But where this becomes challenging and difficult is when we do the same thing for women. And I want to say, you know what, saints? The Word of God cuts all of us to the heart. It does not pick on men or women uniquely. It does challenge the sins that we are more likely to commit. In the message that I preached a couple of months ago, I said this, and I want to remind you of it. Unredeemed men are lazy, idolatrous, and abusive, and they love to take what is not theirs. I do wish that I could say that Christian men are always better. I I don't think that's true. In fact, there are many people that falsely profess Christ, and, and there are abusers within the church. But here's the thing. Redeemed men that are truly following Jesus become like Jesus. Redeemed men are sacrificial, hardworking, joyful They provide for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs of their communities. And yes, of course, women also do this, but men are called to go first, to bear the heaviest burden, not because women are not capable, women are very capable, but so that they are cherished and served. 
so that they are loved and celebrated. If that's true of men, then biblically, let's pause for a moment and based on what Genesis describes, say a word about women before we go to this text. I believe that unredeemed women, and this is less popular to say, but unredeemed women grab for power and can be manipulative with their sexuality. If men are abusive, then women can be manipulative. And they can do it in different ways and for different reasons. Now, I'm not saying every woman in this is this way, but I'm saying an unredeemed woman can behave in this way. Where a man is tempted to use his size and maybe the volume of his voice to have his way even when he's wrong, a woman is more likely to go and talk to all of her friends and come back with a group that all agrees with her, that shows you how you're wrong. And so the ways that we handle unresolved, unhealthy conflict are generally different. And that type of gossip and slander is a grab for power. And sometimes it's used in godless ways that tear down good people. But if unredeemed women wrongly, subversively grab for power and can be manipulative with their sexuality, then redeemed women affirm godly leadership and they receive and nurture strength and leadership from men in appropriate ways in differing relationships. Now, that's, that's a lot of words. It's like, what do you even mean by that? Well, what I want to say is, a woman is not called to submit to a man because he's a man, period. So if you are a single woman, you have no responsibility to submit to a husband because you don't have a husband. And within the church, you are not called to submit to other men because they are men, In fact, men and women are all called to submit to the leadership that God has established with pastoral authority. You can think of passages like at the end of Hebrews where it says broadly to the entire congregation, obey those who have the rule over you. It's not just women, it's men as well. But when Paul is about to talk about calling elders to serve, he does teach that pastors are called to be men. Or perhaps a better way to say that is that some men are uniquely called to serve in the pastorate. I believe it ought to be plural. It's always plural throughout the New Testament. There are great checks and balances for churches that have a plurality of elders. And in our text here, he's going to talk about how the office of overseer in chapter 3 is intended to be filled with multiple people in a given congregation. So ladies, if you have a man who is not in leadership, you have no need to submit to him within the context of the church just because he's a man. But if your pastor is pointing you to the word of God and he's faithfully explaining it, it's the word of God that ultimately has authority and you do have a responsibility. Just like a man who is not in leadership has a responsibility to submit to the leadership of the elders of the church. And because he's addressing different groups of people generally, we end up with a ton of questions about this. You might say, well, how do you know that this applies everywhere? Well, partly because next week we're going to see he talks about Adam and Eve. That's why I read from Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Not only does the entire church adopt 1 Timothy all across the ancient world, all across the past two millennia, 
as faithfully instructing us in how we should live, Paul's reasoning for these instructions point to the Garden of Eden. There are some who would say, you know, this is really about a situation in Ephesus that was out of control, and so he's addressing just Ephesus. But if that's true, when he explains in verse 13 the reason for his instruction, he wouldn't say, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That verse would not exist. He would say, for in Ephesus, you ladies are out of control, and you've got to get a handle on it. But he doesn't say that. He uses a universal biblical reason for the instructions that he's given. He points to Genesis. And I believe that we literally descended from Adam and Eve. And all of us inherit the sin that comes through Adam. Romans 5 points to Adam, not Eve says that he was ultimately responsible. He was, he was the head of the home, and Eve's failure was his failure. Romans teaches that death passes down to all of us through Adam. And when we look at Genesis, we find the reason, not only for our brokenness, but even before the fall. Paul says, Adam was formed first. There's a difference in leadership that comes from being created first. doesn't mean you're better. doesn't mean you're more in the image of God. It doesn't mean a lot of things that, that people misunderstand. What it means is you have a responsibility to love and cherish your wife. And in the context of the church, the elders of the church have a responsibility to love and cherish the women of the church, to make sure that they can thrive, to make sure that they can minister with all the gifts that God has given them. And so with all of that, I don't know if I'm deeper or less deep now, but I want to read the verses that are probably the most controversial for this week, and then if we survive this week, we'll do next week. So we've talked about, number one, pray. Number two, don't divide. Number three this morning is don't show off. And so I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Now, some people would ask me, Pastor, do you believe women shouldn't braid their hair? I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. That's a literal interpretation of that verse. And, and I would say no. I think there actually is a general truth here that says, be modest and humble in what you do with your hair and with your clothing. And in their particular context, women would literally spend a day getting their hair done in very intricate, extremely costly ways so that they could publicly display their wealth. Okay, we do this differently today. Everybody knows a show-off, right? You know, some people do it with fancy watches. Some people do it with fancy cars. Some people do it with their clothes still to this day. But in this day and age, the way that you showed your social status was by having a hairdo that was so elaborate and expensive that multiple people would have to work on it, and you would display your jewels as they were pinned in your hair, and it was crazy. And Paul says, look, ladies, I'm saying that draws attention to yourself in a way that if you've come to worship Jesus, the focus should be on Jesus, not on your hair. So if you walk in and the whole church goes, whoa. Something's off. And you might say, well, man, I, I would never do that. 
And I think Paul would look at you and say, I'm not talking to you. The issue is, ladies, be mindful of how you dress when you come to worship. And I would add, men, you also need to be mindful of how you dress when you come to worship. But the reality is, men are more in danger of coming to worship looking like slobs, so no one will care. Women are more likely to try to increase their value by showing off in one way or another. And we have gathered to worship Christ, so let's make sure that nothing hinders our focus on Christ. I want to be very clear here because so many people outside the church and even inside the church take teachings like this and they start saying, you know, well, you just teach women that their bodies are evil and they have to be hidden and that they're they're temptresses. No, not at all. The Bible celebrates human sexuality in both men and women. There's nothing evil about it at all. The question is, What are you doing with your appearance? Are you making it easier or more difficult for someone to worship the Lord? And I would even go so far as to say, I like to lift weights. I go to a gym three times a week. It's not hard to find men who like to show off their bodies either. It's weird, but men do it. And when a man does it, it's wrong. Thankfully, at least right now in our culture, I haven't seen a man come into the church trying to show off his body to get attention for himself. If it happens, we'll point to this verse and say, you know what, these are general instructions for women, but they apply to you too, buddy. So do not distract from worship by showing off, particularly with the way you prepare your physical appearance. The positive instruction is, here's what we ought to do, and he is speaking to women. He says, here's what you want to do, is let your good works be known. Now, Jesus does clearly teach we're not to do good for recognition, we're not to do good to build ourselves up, but Paul says, good works cannot be hidden forever. People know when you serve faithfully. And some of our faithful servants, it's, it's safest to mention people who have passed on and gone to be with the Lord, but, but you can mention people like Mary Alice that our church has celebrated, and rightly so, because she served in Sunday school for 70 years. Uh, I think she would not want public recognition, but public recognition is appropriate and due. She's known for her good works and for the way she served the children of our church for so long. And that type of reputation is good and healthy, and that ought to be what we are known for as people of God. So as Paul says, ladies, don't allow your appearance to be distracting. He says, you are part of the reputation of our church. Let your good works be known. Don't be ashamed of it. You don't want to show off, but make sure that you're so faithful in serving the Lord that it can't be hidden. Let your good works be the thing that makes you truly attractive. And then the most difficult verse of all, verse 11, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now again, I would point to 1 Corinthians where Paul is giving general instructions to the church and Paul clearly says, men, all things must be done decently and in order. Men are not given a license to just interrupt the service. In fact, in our culture, it's very rare to even get like an amen. Like we are a pretty quiet church. So there's no issue of disruptiveness here at all. 
However, what I think he is doing, and the reason I think he's doing this is because he's about to talk about Adam and Eve, is he is warning against a type of subversiveness. And here's where both men and women do this constantly in our culture. Have you ever heard someone say, well, you think that because you're a man? Or, you're just saying that because you're a woman. We, we do this. And sometimes it's right. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's a kind of character assassination that shuts down conversation. So, I'm preaching what I believe God wants us to know as a church. And I get accused of believing the Bible. And the only reason I believe it is because I'm a man. It's not true. And in fact, I want to gently, as gently as I can say, that's rebellion. That is completely ignoring what the word of God says. And that is a failure to submit to the leadership that God has established. And that's exactly what Eve did. So when Satan tempts Eve, she actually remembers Adam's instructions, and she completely disregards them. And and friends, here's why that's a problem. And I think everyone would actually agree this is a problem. So when you're married, the two become one flesh, right? It's wrong to act independently of your spouse, for both men and women, okay? So, so men are famous for their hobbies. Every man has some hobby, whether it's you know, woodworking or fishing or hunting or, or whatever it is. And if your hobby takes over your life and you neglect your wife and your family, everyone would agree, that's a problem. Okay, your, your first priority as a man is to faithfully love your wife and provide for her spiritually and emotionally and physically. And, and yes, of course, you, you share those responsibilities with her. It's not like you do everything and she just sits back. But your responsibility is to lead. And if you act independently of her as if you are not married, you are failing to keep your marriage vows. You are failing to serve her and love her as Christ served and loved the church. A failure to act like a married couple is a sin. And what Eve does is when she's tempted by the devil, she never once thinks, what's going to happen to Adam if I do this? She never once even ponders, you know, Adam told me that I shouldn't, Nah, whatever. And she goes ahead and does it anyway. Her sin says she was deceived. She, she believed the words that the serpent told her. It doesn't say that she disobeyed knowing full well what she did. But where you can say that she went wrong was that she disobeyed her husband who had taught her what God had said. And friends, whether you're a man or a woman, whenever you disobey God's clear teaching that's given to you by someone who loves you, you're in sin. And I think the reason that this verse sort of bookends the passage that I'm reading is it begins addressing a kind of toxic masculinity. Typically, generally, If I say something doctrinal and a man disagrees with me, he's going to come to me and say, Pastor, we got to talk. I think you're wrong. And that's okay. That's fine. 
Hopefully, we will together submit to the Word of God and eventually come to an agreement about what the Bible teaches. But like I said earlier, typically and generally, there are exceptions, but typically and generally, if a woman disagrees with the Word of God, she's not going to come talk to me. She's going to go talk to her friends. And that's wrong. Now, check your heart. It's it's not wrong to have friends that you ask questions with, but are you doing it so that you learn the word of God and submit to the word, or are you doing it so that you can disregard the authority that God has placed in your life? Friends, it's hard to know your own heart, and that's part of why he's put us together in the church. So let's be faithful to submit to the word. And if we disagree about what it says, let's go to the word together. Let's hear these instructions and not try to explain them away, but let's hear what they say to us. All of us are called to submit to the word, not just women. All of us are called to submit to the word. But men and women, let's work hard to have real unity, to not divide the church with foolish, pig-headed arguing, And to not divide the church with foolish, backhanded gossip. But instead, together, listening to the word of God. I've said it before, and I want to say it again. I believe that the greatest witness available to our church is by getting this issue right. Instead of rejecting the word of God, embracing what it clearly teaches to us. I believe that as we follow the Lord, we will be blessed and curiously a powerful witness to a watching world when men and women who don't trust each other or love each other outside the church are able to genuinely love and trust one another inside the church. Friends, I don't think we're completely there yet. We've had some history that has hurt us, even some recent things that have deeply hurt. But friends, I believe the answer to that is to not rip these verses out of the Bible and to try to act like they don't apply to us. I believe the healing that we need comes from obedience to the word of God, humbly submitting to its teaching. So would you join me in praying that God would heal and bless us in our church as we submit to his word? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you know our hearts. You know these are hard things for us to talk about and hard instructions for us to hear. Father, I want to ask forgiveness for the hurt that has happened between genders, for the failure of men to love and lead. And I ask that you would bless us, God, with good, faithful leadership. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate the gifts that you have given us for the building up of the body, for the spread of the gospel, that we would never compete with one another or feel threatened because someone else is powerfully gifted by your spirit, but instead we would celebrate the gifts that you've given us and find ways to use them all for the advancement of your kingdom and for the glory of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to obey these commands, that we would pray, that we would work hard, 
And that we as your people would experience your presence and your blessing among us as we grow. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.